Is there any chance that we could do a second series of page 94? Second series of the podcast? Yeah. No. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Welcome back to page 94, now with more series than there are England rugby teams still in the World Cup. Uh, my name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and we are back in Private Eye's luxurious Soho offices. Uh, for series two, we have decided to up the sound quality thanks to a very nice man named Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. Uh, regrettably, we have had to lower the joke quality at the same time to preserve the balance, but the jokes that you do hear will be crystal clear and delivered to the ear of your choice. Not really, it's in mono. Uh, we've been away for a few months, obviously, in between series, so we've missed two big stories. Firstly, the intense embarrassment caused to David Cameron after revealing that as a young man he committed a revolting act with Lord Ashcroft, where he said, would you like a job in exchange for all this money? Uh, we would like to stress that a bloke in the pub the other day told us that Lord Ashcroft has sex with sheep, we don't have any proof on the matter, uh, but we thought we ought to let you know so that you can make up your own minds, because that apparently is how the standard of proof now works. The second big story, of course, was the Labour leadership election. Uh, Corbyn won after assuming the brilliant slogan, Jez We Can, uh, homage to Barack Obama's Yes We Can, David Cameron's Yes We Can, and a very good omen for Sadiq Khan in next year's mayoral contest. Also, there are rumours that the Tory leadership competition, whenever it next comes up, Theresa May will run under the slogan, Theresa May. This week, we will be talking about corporate sponsorship, which washes over party conferences, and also about privatised earth-shattering tax map, uh, published a few weeks ago, which has had dodgy millionaires the world over quaking in their exclusive Gucci calfskin boots. But firstly, Solomon Hughes on party conferences. This year, the Conservative conference was held in Manchester, the Labour conference was held in Brighton, and the Lib Dem conference in a seven-seater Citroen C4 Grand Picasso, although obviously Nick Clegg did have to sit on Tim Farron's lap. Solomon Hughes is a journalist at the Eye who has been covering party conferences for over a decade. He tends to focus not on the main speeches that you see on the news each night, but more on the fringe meetings and the stands around the edges of the conference, where a lot more of the very interesting stuff happens. I first asked Solomon about the basic structure of a party conference. Let's say the main conference takes place between 10 and 12 and 1 and 4. That's the sessions. That means from 8 until uh, half past 9, between 12 and between 2 and between 5 and midnight, there are meetings in every one of the conference venues, hotels, hotels nearby and every other kind of place that they can get a meeting held in. A lot of them will be meetings of the political party in its own wings and organisations, but a lot of them will be organised either by think tanks or lobby groups or directly by corporations uh, they'll be catered which is handy for me so you can just run around <laughs> feed yourself on sort of chicken wings and glass of uh, orange juice and uh, those little tiny quiches that they give you in those kind of events uh, just with so you don't have to even stop for food run around with a notebook and find something out it struck me at a very basic level that's interesting because it's not reported, but also because somebody's paying for those chicken wings that I'm eating, somebody's paying for those rooms, somebody's paying for those events, and you're supposed to. That's meant to be the first rule of investigative journalism is follow the money. That's what you say, isn't it? Follow the money. And there you do, so I literally follow the money, and surprisingly, not many... I wouldn't say I'm the only person who does, but not many other people do follow that money. So it's, it's a gift for a story, and to my mind, a relatively important so for example in the latest uh, edition of the mag there's uh, your story about the difference between labor and the conservative conferences this year which seems a bit starker perhaps than it has been in previous years i think it is starker i think uh, before particularly during the blair years because uh, 
Blair made very crudely made Labour more of an establishment party or more of and took it slightly more towards the Conservatives and because the Conservatives see themselves the Cameron lot as heir to Blair they brought it slightly back it was very smooth and part of the smooth transition between the two was the equally very very similar uh, lobbying of both conferences the very very similar corporate interest in both parties I think that has been at least temporarily we'll see how whether it sticks it has temporarily been disrupted by the Corbyn election they did the lobbyists did seem to be having a great deal more trouble getting members of the shadow cabinet onto their platforms but I think buy the magazine if you want to find out more yes on that one you've brought along a couple of props as well which I think it's only fair that we mention because they are so good one of them is a little red rubber duck which has uh, Fujitsu written on the front of it presumably from Labour conference uh, no, actually, that's from Conservative oh, Conference, yeah. but they were available at both. <laughs> but they were different. They were di- the ducks were in a different position. Fundamentally misunderstanding how podcasts work. I've got a visual aid. Yeah. Uh, but it's a uh, red rubber duck uh, with Fujitsu on a small one. It's a squeaky duck, so let's see oh. if that works as a, a, an audio aid. But not very well. It doesn't have a very good squeak, which is almost like a metaphor for actually for Fujitsu material as well. Now, Fujitsu... We'd like to announce our new sponsor, by the way, for page 94. (laughs) Yeah, Fujitsu are the big corporation, big computer corporation, and they've done a lot of government work. They're after a lot of government business, but they've been involved in a very, very significant failure. Well, one significant failure of, of a few. And that was that they used to run the National Health or part of the National Health Service Programme for IT, which was an IT programme uh, throughout the health service. It failed and failed absolutely. One of the worst public sector contracting failures of our time. Now, Fujitsu were sacked for their part of it before the program came to an end and they sued the governments for uh, 700 million pounds they sued them through an obscure business friendly uh, arbitrator called the london court of international arbitration now uh, they won as far as we know because it's very secretive this procedure but as far as we are aware they won 700 million pounds out of the government uh, out of the nhs budget for a system that did not work now my attitude to a company which had just sued you for 700 million quid would be to keep them somewhat at arm's <laughs> length. But uh, they bought their way, physically, they bought their way and their little rubber ducks into both conferences more dramatically to the um, Conservative conference, I think. What Fujitsu did is they sponsored the Blue Room in the Conservative Conference. Now, the Blue Room is everyone inside the Conservative Conference has to get through the Ring of Steel. That's to say you have to have your conference pass, you have to be vetted, you have to uh, be a delegate, be elected, or you have to buy your way in in some way. But that's not enough. Some people are more conservative than others. (laughs) Their pass also gets them into the Blue Room, which is like the luxury suite, you know, the the classy bit. But uh, what Fujitsu did... is they paid, uh, and I'm just picking up the uh, conference brochure here, they paid to run the Blue Room. The Blue Room uh, will offer invited guests, which is to say ministers, M- uh, senior MPs, people like that. It'll involve, offer invited guests, complimentary refreshments, Wi-Fi, phone charging, laptop facilities, and a comfortable place to meet and view conference coverage. 
sponsored by Fujitsu slogan created a connected society they're creating a society is connected to them fairly obvious way of uh, reaching out to the leadership of the Conservative Party because it, they, they reported this to the electoral register I think that cost them they had to pay the Conservative Party £45,000 to run it now on top of that they will have have some running costs because there'll be free wine and beer and what have you orange juice and chicken wings exactly and quiches, so on and yeah, so yeah. forth uh wi-fi all this kind of thing staffing so but let's say that's maybe 10 grand maybe it's 50 grand to do that but you're talking about a corporation that has, can win or lose 700 million pound from the government that's small money and it's also scattering their little rubber ducks that don't squeak all over the place. So the other thing we're left with is the meetings which take place on stages, and they're often sponsored by some of these people who are, you know, for example, uh, you mentioned briefly in the in the piece in the latest mag, SAB Miller, the huge brewery, who sponsor a meeting, and that was with an MP who's the head of the, is it the all-party group on it, alcohol? It is, yeah, and I think, again, I'm, I would stick to my principle that if you want to read about that, buy the eye and read about it, but I would say this, well, obviously a beer company uh, sponsoring a meeting on problem drinking is just absurd but re- re- <laughs> read read the magazine to find out the details of the absurdity as far as i squeezed in but it's interesting that sab miller have always been very very strong at lobbying i think in this case they have a particular issue about the regulation of drink but to be honest they lobby every year even though, when they don't have a particular issue you can go to any political event you often find sab miller backing the reason for that is because sab miller were an, a south african apartheid company and so they know what it's like to be in trouble to have boycotts so they have a long history of of trying to undermine bad feeling by uh, lobbying so they're just every political party's friend they're every organization's friend i think you can always if you this is in a piece of advice if you're setting up some kind of think tank or something approach sab miller because i'm sure they'll give you money they'll probably give you beer <laughs> yeah the meet- meetings often it's think tanks think tanks do it and if you look at um that's a bit of paper they're wobbling on the mic if you look at uh, the timetable this one is for policy exchange their timetable at the Conservative Party conference. And if I look at all the meetings on the left, I'd be reading about Francis Maud or Charles Henry or George Freeman or Lord Holmes, so various uh, Conservative Party laws and ministers and MPs. But if I look down the right-hand side, it's little corporate logos. You know, meetings are sponsored by ATOS, the Disability uh, Testing Corporation, or uh, Lloyds Banking Group, or British Gas, Deloitte, the Accountants, or KPMG. So it's very obvious because they stick their logos everywhere. ATOS, a company who uh, just have a terrible record for carrying out uh, public contracts, have got Francis Maud on the platform next to them, and they've got their speaker because when you sponsor it, you get your speaker on the platform. They've got their speaker saying, ATOS are great, and we're really caring and we do a really good job and we're really think thoughtful and then you've got francis maud saying something about oh i'm working with off the top of my head he was some saying something like i'm working with an ecology of exciting new companies and you're thinking no you're not you're sat next to this really bad performing corporation and if you really believed in the idea of making public contracts more efficient the first thing you do is turn around and tell him to up his game Okay, so I'm looking at the Conservative Conference brochure here, and one of the events is Bright Blue with EDF Energy. Yeah, Bright Bright Blue are a think tank. Okay. They're sort of liberal end of the Conservative Party because they're bright 
and they're blue. They obviously toyed with the name Dim Blue <laughs> and rejected it, but they're bright. But uh, there, there you go, the EDF energy, they're straight in there. And I think, aren't they discussing the environment or power? They are discussing, should Conservatives still care about climate change? Yes, they should care, but not so much as to bother EDF energy. Or they should care enough about climate change that they believe in nuclear power, so they should throw any amount of money at EDF energy. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing. I went to the EDF energy reception at the Conservative Party conference, because we'd written about that before the conference saying how come Andrea Leedsom who's the uh, energy minister who's meant to have negotiated something with EDF Energy is going to negotiate the cost of their nuclear power station and everyone can see it's just really really expensive how can she do this terrible deal for cost and then turn up at their party it's outrageous Uh, so I did go to the um, EDF Energy reception which was just like locusts you know just a huge amount of delegates hurling themselves at all the free drink of which there was a great deal so it's just like the great big EDF piss up you know <laughs> thank you for buying our nuclear power station get drunk uh, but uh, Andrea Leedson had to give her last minute apologies uh, she was replaced by a backbench MP so that was a shame was and a I'm sure that's absolutely nothing to do with us uh, making a point but uh, yeah so, I mean that's just it's just relentless the amount yeah it. so the, the thing is that when when it's for example bright blue with EDF energy bright blue is the think tank EDF is the company it's EDF who are ultimately paying for it but they're doing so through Bright Blue. Yes, that's right. I mean, Bright Blue is, uh, I suppose, it's not quite a think tank. It's a kind of a, it's, it's more directly, most think tanks aren't, don't say we are Conservative or we are Labour. They might have a more of a tendency. Bright Blue is more like a ginger group. It is actually a, a, an organisation f- much more focused on the Conservative Party. Okay. But yeah, same principle. Yeah, so you do for IPPR or uh, for Social Market Foundation or Policy Exchange, uh, you would do a meeting where th- th- I think they find common themes. These are all organisations that are, believe in market-oriented reform, but they put out brochures saying, sponsor us and we we will help you shape the question and we will put your person on the platform. So at the end of the day, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And that's you can see that with everyone dancing uh, around there. So if I look at page 40 of my Conservative Party brochure... And if you're listening at home with your own Conservative Party brochure, you can turn to page 40 now. Yes. uh, (laughs) uh, There's a meeting there uh, that's run by Chatham House, which are a very establishment. I mean, think tank isn't quite the word. Very establishment organisation where debates among the of high policy are held uh, deep roots in the in british society you know absolute access to westminster so chatham house is holding a debate but it's funded by city citi or Citibank or city group you might otherwise know them uh, and clifford chance the uh, uh, solicitors or lawyers or whatever law firm and it's on britain europe and the world risks and opportunities and then if you look on uh, page 85 of the uh, labor conference magazine there's the same meeting britain europe and the world sponsored by city and clifford chance but run by chatham house now both meetings were discussions of foreign policy and very uh, serious uh, meetings it, actually they originally uh, advertised it at labor with uh, chuck amuna uh, but it wasn't actually it turned out to be emma reynolds and stephen kinnock uh, backbencher and a shadow minister respect but sort of moderately important figures in Labour. Uh, And then at the Conservative Party, it was uh, Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond on the platform. 
Now, the Labour Party one was a very serious and sensible discussion about uh, why we should possibly try and stay within Europe but reform it, why we should worry about a resurgent Russia, why we should be concerned about uh, Islamist terrorism and all these security threats means that we should maintain international institutions and try and make them work better. Uh, I didn't catch so much of Philip Hammond's, but I imagine he said the same thing, but not so much Europe. So perfectly sensible Chatham House type discussion because what they didn't talk about uh, city had the bank city group city bank had a man on the platform both times and they didn't talk about the threats to stability caused by Citibank, which isn't imaginary, it's very, very real, because Citibank were absolutely central to the 2007-8 financial collapse. They were one of the people pumping uh, collateralized debt obligations, these financial instruments that turned out to be completely destructive. And that financial crash has destabilized the world. It's destabilised the world as much as any of the threats which they're discussing so wakely at their meeting. City uh, were sued by the Securities and Exchange Commission and fined in the end, uh, I think it's uh, $285 million for their bad behaviour. But what they found out when they dug into City was that uh, they'd been selling these uh, financial instruments even though internally they knew they were rubbish. And they described them literally as a collection of dog shit. That's what their traders said. That's why they got fined two hundred and eighty. million because they sold a collection of dog shit which undermined the world economy. Now, there's a way of discussing international relations which would say our international institutions, one of the main dangers they should regulate is the dangers of untrammeled financial misbehaviour or the banks. Because that's the one thing it isn't discussed. And to be honest, if it had been discussed, the guy from City is there. He could have spoken knowledgeably. You could have said, you know, when you sold that dog shit and it undermined the world, was that a good idea or a bad idea? And what steps have you made to stop selling financial dog shit in the future? And should you be more heavily regulated so that the circulation of dog shit can be reduced or possibly eliminated? And genu- I mean, I'm, I'm sort of joking about it, but it actually is a question which he could address. But it's the one question that isn't addressed. That's the way that the lobbying works, is it isn't just it puts the question on the table, oh, you know, invest in nuclear even though it's really expensive and, you know, have a drink on EDF. It's the question that's put off the table. Worry about Putin, but don't worry about City. I mean, I don't know, if it, could it work that way? I mean, if we're honest, if you think <laughs> Putin, if he had any sense, would sponsor a meeting, at, and then they could have it and they could all have a meeting and he could say, well, the biggest worry is Citibank, you know, and everyone could say, yeah, 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 and ignore the, the danger of Russia. Well, there you go. And it's, for the companies, it's a fig leaf almost, of this is being organised by a think tank. I feel that way. It's, it seems to me that the think tanks act as lobbying institutions. They appear at the conference on the behalf of corporations, have a corporate-sponsored debate with a minister on the platform or a senior backbencher on the platform. They shape it like that. I'd love to have a look through this. I have no, I've never seen one of the, I've never been to a conference. Yeah, to, yeah. My, to my shame. One of the weird things at conferences is a huge amount of sponsorship from Heathrow or Gatwick. Heathrow sponsored the uh, Heathrow Delegates Lounge. It was like a mock-up of a kind of executive lounge at an airport. The Gatwick had sponsored a meeting with The Spectator where they had not one but two Gatwick managers on the um, top table. The whole event had a real freebie atmosphere which comes from Gatwick. That's to say The Spectator might have a lot of money but obviously doesn't have enough because they served free glasses of The Spectator's own gin 
<laughs> so everyone gets a what? glass. I wasn't even aware the spectator had made its own gin. The spectator, you can buy it, spectator gin. And so everyone who went in got these glasses of gin, and you could just go back and have endless amounts. So by the end of it, there's all these very ruddy-faced people <laughs> listening to a debate about Gatwick. It's quite 18th century having out glasses of gin at a conference <laughs> event, isn't it? But the spectator gin, how they've done it, is they've put Earl Grey tea in it. It's got Earl Grey tea flavour. So it's like doubly English, isn't it? It's like gin is kind of imperial English or Earl Grey tea is imperial English so we'll just stick them together (laughs) and the result it's not bad but it's a bit over flavoured ironically it's like a metaphor for the spectator (laughs) itself the mellow fruity and triple distilled Solomon Hughes there Uh, based on what he said about the spectator gin actually we thought we'd pop down and ask Adam McQueen and Francis Ween if Private Eye had a drink what it would be That sounds like a drink. Unopened. Addressed to me at Private Eye. Francis Ween, Private Eye. I have no idea who it's from. But it appears to be... It's been there for years, I think. Uh, Chianti Classico. Okay, well, that's the office drink at the moment. From Davenport Lions. It's my Christmas bribe from our lawyers from many years ago when they were called Davenport Lions. Uh, we're a drink that, from a company that no longer exists. I've uh, got six bottles. I've never had six bottles from the lawyers. Well, you know, you have to earn it. So there you have it. Uh, now, a few weeks ago, Private Eye published on our website a map, uh, not just any map, it's a map of the UK in which you can look at any bit of the country, you can look at your own home, you can look at your neighbour's place, you can look in any area and find out which properties are owned by foreign-based companies, especially those registered in overseas tax havens. It's been hugely popular and it's been very revealing about the state of property in Britain today and what it's used for. So I spoke to Richard Brooks and Christian Eriksson, two of the hacks behind the map, and ask them a little bit more about it. Here's Christian. We've essentially acquired this information from the land registry via freedom of information requests, and then we've used that information to produce a database which links offshore companies and title numbers to uh, unique properties. And then we've kind of um, used the work of Anna Powell-Smith, an expert software engineer, to then assemble this map using other publicly available information. Yeah, yeah, we found that about uh, half a million acres of England and Wales was owned by offshore companies and that's just a bit bigger than the size of Surrey about the size of Greater London something like that and since then we've mapped those areas yes you've made a fantastically entertaining map I've tried it myself it's so much fun Uh, so if you go to the eyes website you can see it you basically plug in any address that you want to see or any even any region of the UK so normally you zoom in on your own house because that's just what you do and you can find out the nearest place where someone is owning a company through a dodgy offshore vehicle that's about a fair summary yeah you have to go online you can't do it through the magazine oh yes um, yeah yeah <laughs> you have to use the computer although we should point out you should um, always buy the magazine as well yeah you know? that's right <laughs> yes so we've had um, readers uh, writing in to report that lots of properties and plots of land in their local area have been acquired uh, by uh, offshore companies tesco's and sainsbury's and boot stores and various pubs uh, and in one case the tax office in leeds is now owned via an offshore company it's quite exciting as well because you see these company names and you see whichever country they're based in and you think who is that and that's yeah. often very unclear as well I think, yeah the trouble it? is you still don't know who's behind those <laughs> offshore companies yeah 
Because they're offshore. That's right. One of the, the uses of this is that readers might know who lives there, so they might be able to tell okay. us exactly what's going on in that uh, property. The, all we can see from our map is that it's owned by some company in the British Virgin Islands, for example. Um, we can't see who's behind that company. Essentially, we're doing David Cameron's work for him. <laughs> he's promised again and again that he's going to open up Britain. It's going to be transparent. This is the way to end corruption and all those yeah. kinds of things. But he never does anything. Right. So we decided, well, we better do it for him. This so is basically the big society in action. Except it's hundreds of thousands of eye readers <laughs> yeah, who are yeah. going to be sending in. Yeah. Oh yes, it's yeah. that it's that uh, nice Syrian gentleman who lives down the road. I think there's an element of what's known as crowdsourcing. Wow. <laughs> Just straight I read into that the... somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, the eye offices themselves, I believe, are owned by an Australian firm. And you mentioned in the article there are some cases where this is not dodgy and not being done to avoid tax. That's right, yes. Um, there are, you know, um, Australian firms, uh, American firms, other European firms which own property and land across the country. And that's perfectly fine. It's just that the analysis that we've done on the data that we've obtained actually shows that the overwhelming majority of these companies with interest in land and property are based in places where finding details of uh, who, who's actually behind these companies is virtually impossible. Tax havens, or as some people call them, secrecy jurisdictions. About 95% are owned by companies in tax havens, what you'd recognise as tax havens. So that's the draw, is that you don't know the identity. That's the reason these companies have done it. So even if you find out the name of the company and the tax haven, you then don't know who's behind the company. That's right. Sometimes that's the reason. Sometimes it's for tax reasons. Mm -hmm. They work well within trust structures that people use to avoid inheritance tax. Uh, You can use them to avoid stamp duty. You can avoid capital gains tax. Property developers like the Candy Brothers, Mm. uh, they use an offshore company to own UK property. And then when they sell that at a gain, that capital gain isn't taxed in the UK. Also, the Queen's in on it, I believe. Is that right? Yes, uh, via her property portfolio, the Crown Estate. Yeah, we're not um, suggesting any direct involvement by the Queen. Well, the Crown Estate is an ancient institution which owns the Queen's property on her behalf. She's strictly the legal owner. However, it's now a state organisation, a public authority. We've discovered, again using FOI requests, that around 120 former Crown Estate properties, where the Crown Estate owns the freehold on those properties, have over recent years been sold to offshore companies via the sale of leaseholds. So the the Crown Estate still owns these properties, but there have been deals which have been done with offshore companies. Now, obviously... This is to the benefit of the Crown Estate, the value of their portfolio. Now, the Queen doesn't receive that money herself. It's received by the Treasury. But a portion of the revenue is then sent back to the Queen in the form of a payment to, you know, for her to maintain her diplomatic activities um, and state, state activities. So in, in a roundabout way, the money which is being generated by some offshore sales may have um, been of Small benefit to the Queen. I've made its way to Queenie. So as well as that motivation for doing it, the the tax benefits that you might get, as, for example, you said the Candy Brothers, uh, I think you mentioned money laundering in the article. Yeah, I mean, British property is is the favourite place for crooks to put their money because you can put a lot of money into it. It retains its value. It cleans it up. And you can also come and live in the property as well. It's absolutely ideal. (laughs) And if you ever look at any major international corruption case, almost invariably some of the money or a big chunk of the money will have been used to buy properties in London. We wrote a couple of years ago about a big case involving a Nigerian governor 
called James Ibori who stole, well, pick a number, perhaps £100 million from Nigerian state. And he had houses throughout London, all owned by companies in Gibraltar and the British Virgin Islands, places like that. And when we looked at the data, we found some very, very strange uh, numbers in there, which look consistent with something like money laundering where properties that might actually be worth perhaps £5 million or something, you know, in a, a very expensive flat in central London, were being transferred sometimes between people who were related or companies who were related uh, for many times the amount they were really worth. So the, the most expensive transfer we found was £425 million for a flat in Kensington. I mean, that will be a nice flat, won't it? Yeah, but, well, I, I, <laughs> but I went there, I went there and had a look outside. It's just, it's in a nice mansion block, yeah. T.S. Eliot plaque on the wall, so, you know, I don't obviously think it, you pay for that. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> I mean, whether that's worth an extra 420 million quid. <laughs> yeah. Strangely, the, the, the owner, who's a hedge fund manager, uh, didn't want to talk about that. Very bizarre. I'm sure that it's just a busy month, October. You'll get a response soon enough. And what's the next stage in terms of changing things governmentally? Because as you say, um, Cameron has been making a lot of noise about transparency. Is there a prospect of things changing anytime soon or any new rules being introduced? Well, David Cameron has promised to um, break down the walls of corporate secrecy. Uh, That was a promise he made in 2013 um, at the G8 summit. You know, he's now promised to publish the information that we've already made public here. But that's not really enough. In order to really stop the abuse of companies buying up property uh, and land um, for tax purposes and potentially money laundering, much, much, much stricter measures have to be brought in. For example, I mean, you could, you could force all landowners to declare at the point of purchase of land who, who is the real beneficial owner of that parcel or that flat or apartment. Equally, the beneficial register of ownership, which is due to be re- um, uh, is it due to be released um, later this year or the beginning of next year, which and yeah. that and that will contain a list of the beneficial owners of UK companies. It's not going to contain details of the true owners of overseas companies. Um, but if it, a British registered company owns a yeah, property, yeah. then you'll be able to see who owns that company as yes. well, who controls it there. But the big problem is these tax haven companies and. Cameron, although he has significant leverage over lots of these tax havens because they're British overseas territories, he's not using that. And he's just said to them, well, you can decide for yourself whether to have public registers of who owns your companies. And they've obviously said, "Um, no, thank you very much. (laughs) Don't think we will. Some people say David Cameron doesn't really have that much power over these overseas territories and crown dependencies. But actually, in, in recent history, this power has been exercised. For example, when the Turks and Caicos Islands were suffering a, quite a nasty corruption scandal, the government was annulled and a new, a new government was appointed. Would the government rather it happened to a British-owned protectorate or crown dependency or thing like that than it all happened in Luxembourg? Yeah, I think the, the, the argument would be that, well, if, if you stopped our tax havens being tax havens, mm. somebody else's would take all the business. At least they're British uh, so tax you never havens, start. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> Best tax havens in the world, yeah. that's what I've always said. The other thing that you mentioned in the, uh, in the latest issue of the mag is that the information was kind of released by mistake. That's uh, exactly correct. I sent off a, you know, an innocent-sounding FOI request <laughs> just for information they had on companies uh, sorry overseas companies with stakes in property here in the UK and they gave it to me and then asked for more information and uh, they said I'm sorry we can't give you any more that previous release was an error 
Have they described you as vexatious? They've described somebody yes, as vexatious. That's correct yeah. as well. Um, we've since requested further information which would allow us to identify the owners, not just the overseas companies which own these properties, but also the identity of the accountants and lawyers who are managing some of these companies to see who's making money. Because they will be based in the UK, won't they? Yes, yes. And most of them that we've had are based, you know, firmly onshore. Even though David Cameron is saying we need to open this stuff up, the land registry is saying it's not in the public interest to do so. Well, this is the same information that David Cameron has belatedly said he will release, even though he could just go on Privatise website and look it up for himself. Well, well we <laughs> want it more up to date. You yeah, know, of course. Well, we, yeah. Want, we, want the, we want it to be updated regularly, and we want the historic information. At the moment, it's only stuff that's been bought from 2005 onwards. Um, well, there must be heaps more from before yeah, exactly. 2005. So this is really yeah. just a, a small sample. And the land registry, I believe you mentioned as well, there was talk of it being privatised which presumably would make things a lot harder to find out. Yeah, that's, Land Registry has been on a list of government businesses for a long time that yeah. various uh, chancellors have looked to sell off. And it may well happen. You know, the current right. business secretary, Sajid Javid, is um, no fan of public ownership. Which but then it might to do with his background uh, as an investment banker in Deutsche Bank. Uh-huh. Which, interestingly, they often act as trustees for some of these offshore companies with, with stakes in land. So make of that what you will. OK, so what's the next stage for people who look at this map, see that just down the road from them, there's a, there's a house or a building or whatever it might be owned by an offshore place? Is it to write to you guys? Let us know. Uh, on the map, there's a, a link click on that and that sets up an email to send to us with details of what you know about property and then we'll look at it well i I won't ask you what uh, your next move is going to be because i know you won't tell me but i'm sure we'll read about it in the mag in due course well this week we've got uh, some more juicy offshore property ownership and we've also got some information on just how much of certain exclusive london boroughs have been bought up in the last few years by offshore companies and it's quite staggering Last question. You, you mentioned very briefly earlier the approximate method by which you um, got hold of all this information. But I think what people really want to know is ex- exactly how did you do it? Well, we. Uh, I'm afraid we had to cut that interview short there for reasons that, let's say, were down to a lack of space. So that's it for this week. There's no time left, no time even to talk about desperate marketing, which this week takes the form of an email from TD Investing, who have emailed their mailing list. With England being victorious in their first World Cup match against Fiji, here's a Woodford 15 consisting of FTSE all-share stocks. These are 15 stocks and shares that the people at TD Investing recommend that you buy, and they have linked them all to rugby players. So the loose head prop for the Woodford 15 is Imperial Tobacco, a seasoned professional that has been in our team for years and often lights up the game. Ugh. If you get sent press releases habitually, then do send over any especially spurious ones to us on the email page94 at private-i.co.uk. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back in a fortnight with another one if you did. And in fact, even if you didn't. Thank you very much. Buy the magazine and goodbye.